Yes. Hi, Alec. It's uh, Sam. Hi, man. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Um, how are you today? Good. Good, good. So, I mean, um, first of all, I want to say, you know, congratulations on uh, Harbinger Down. I watched it last week, enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. Um, it, it was just a massive callback to sort of like the the sci-fi horror films that I watched growing up, you know, like Aliens and The Thing, which, you know, I think a lot of people have said that by now, haven't they, that, you know, it's just one big massive nod to all these sort of films. Exactly. Yeah, I mean... Um, I mean, I like to sort of do a little bit of a background with uh, the people I talk to, but, you know, I want to sort of, as Harbinger Down is um, literally, it actually, I think it dropped today in the UK. Um, oh, did it? Yeah, yeah. Um, That's good. Yeah. With a different uh, title, right? Um, not, not as far as I've seen. I, I see it earlier. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, we do. We, we, saw, we, we saw that they were going to retitle it. Uh, oh, God, it was something I'm going to catch hell for. Uh it, they were calling it uh, inanimate. Inanimate. Oh, yeah, bad. which which could easily be used against me in a review, you know. Yeah. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> well, no, I, I see it um, on Amazon earlier as a harbinger down. Um, oh, good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, I, I, I don't know why with some films over here um, they they feel the need to rename, give them some really odd, you know, renames. Um, it, well, I have to say that that Harbinger Down is not necessarily the most descriptive or marketable name, you know. So. Yeah, um, I think I, I think I, when when I mentioned it to a few people, they were like, "Is that, is that a sequel to Black Hawk Down?" And I was like, "No." Yeah. <laughs> I uh, I uh, our joke was uh, calling it. Uh, it would be a movie about like you know, like eating. Um, America, what Americans want really want to eat for breakfast, and we call it hamburger dawn. Hamburger dawn. <laughs> and uh, but anyway, yeah, yeah. So so yeah. So uh, well, thank you for uh, for taking a look. Yeah. No. I mean, um, obviously, there's a there's a little bit of a background story. Actually, the, the, there was a little documentary like on YouTube that you put out about the uh, the whole Kickstarter story and things like that. Um, which if you know, anybody who's listening who hasn't seen Harbinger Down yet, um, I'd recommend seeing the film before you watch the mini documentary because it's got quite a few revealing things in there when you talk about the death scenes. But um, you know, that was um, that was quite a quite an interesting story. Do you want to give everyone just a little breakdown of what of what the, yeah, the just um, was? you know, the, what what led to the making of the movie was our experiences culminating with. Um, uh, the thing 2011 where most of our work was replaced digitally. Yeah. Um, it was, that was not a unique experience because we had been seeing this uh, digital encroachment, digital replacement happening for a number of years. It had happened to Rick Baker on Men in Black and on um, The Wolfman. He did transformation stuff, practical transformation stuff that was all uh, you know, scuttled in favor of digital work. So yeah. uh, around that time of 2011, when it happened to us, uh, we started thinking, well, maybe maybe we're just a sort of, you know, quaint uh, remnant of a bygone era, you know. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe <clears throat> you know, we're um, we're like the uh, theremin or something, you know, that, that that's just not going to, you know, uh, if, if ever anybody uses practical effects, it'll be very limited uses and so on and so forth. So people, 
started asking us via the internet, hey, what happened on the thing? 2011, did you guys screw up? And we were like, in, in, you know, in order to, per, to show people what we did, we put that five-minute video up of all of the cut stuff. And the response was amazing. Um, it was, you know, most fans were heartbroken. They were angry, outraged, sad. Um, and that's when, you know, we put up a few more. We put up the I Am Legend stuff we did for Ridley Scott, a very similar reaction. Our test makeup for the Green Goblin for Sam Raimi, <clears throat> similar reaction. So we kind of came the poster boys of, you know, cool work that you never got to see. And um, so we started getting some feedback online from people who were saying, you know, what can be done? What do we, you know, how do we, how do we turn this thing around? How do we convince the studios? And my response was, well, you really aren't going to convince the studios because they don't care about what technique is used. They only care, um, you know, about, um, well, there are a number of reasons why things go digital that don't have anything to do with uh, quality of work or what's right for the story or what have you. And if you look on our YouTube video, you can find a link. Our YouTube channel, you can find a link of a discussion Tom and I have called CG or not CG. And um, we it's about a 25-minute video that where we discuss all the various things that go into, you know, why studios decide to replace things or go digital in the first place. Anyway, back to this movie. Uh, so it wasn't, once we started hearing back from fans, it wasn't hard to sort of connect the dots and say, oh, listen, maybe through uh, crowdfunding, it's a way of us seeing how broad-based the fan, the fan, uh, 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 the, the fan base is. And would these fans be willing to fund a movie that promotes practical effects? And um, so that was the pitch. Um, I went to them and said, listen, if you like to sing, the John Carpenter movie, The Sing, and if you feel the same way about 80s sci-fi horror that we do, then um, come on this journey with us and fund us. And, and I will write and direct a movie that is a love letter to those great movies of that era, specifically yeah. Alien and The Thing. Yeah, and we'll bring all of our skills as amalgamated dynamics to to the uh, to the VFX. We'll call on our um, great depth of you know long friendships with people like Lance Henriksen and uh, Robert Skotak and uh, you know Michael Lantieri, people like that, and we will do what uh, no one else can do for this budget. You know, and yeah. so we got funded. I think we were the uh, <clears throat> I think we're the highest funded sci-fi or horror Kickstarter in history. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. but uh, And then, of course, through that Kickstarter campaign, we met Selfan Saeed Al-Darmaki of Dark Dunes, and he brought even more funding, and that really opened things up and allowed us to put even more on the screen. So that's sort of the backstory. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, with... Um sort of uh you, you said in the um the little video that was online about that kick, funding a film through kickstarter like uh, crowdfunding is not always you know um a positive thing because you've got so many uh sort of uh, oh you're talking about the cracked video yeah 
yeah, you've got so many things that you have to fulfill with sort of like rewards and that, and you were like adding things to the yeah. script just to accommodate them. Um, I mean, do you think that that sort of has a relation to sort of studios where, you know, companies, uh, film productions feel the pressure from studio and they're forced to change things and things like that? Do you think that, you know, although Kickstarter and things like that give you sort of a freedom, they do restrict you in other ways like that? Yeah, um, the Cracked video, you know, the guys at Cracked, you know, they're sensationalists, so they put up a, they put a sensational headline on that, and they, but if you actually listen to, to what we were all saying collectively in that, it's that Kickstarter is a positive thing. Yeah. I'm not sure, it's, it's impossible to say how, going forward, how Kickstarter will change, um, you know, it, would it be possible at this point, for us to do exactly the same thing again. I don't know. I, I, it's too difficult for me to say. I don't know why some Kickstarters are successful and why some are not. All I yeah. know is that we went in with, with a genuine passion and an authenticity, and I think uh, people responded well to it. The aspect of like that, you know, you're going to have to serve somebody. It's true. No matter where, no matter how you do it, unless you are self-funded and you're willing to throw your money away, right? Yeah. Um, and just do whatever you want. You're willing to take the risk. And, it, it, you know, you are going to have to um, be respectful of an investor or a pledger, regardless. And even though you know things like writing in uh, uh, parts for for pledgers and stuff, even though that is um, a necessary. Uh, structure it provides a necessary structure for you in order to get to the, to get to your goals. Um, it still, on the whole, is less is more freeing than working for a studio yeah. or having a traditional investor. Um, so I, I would say, in the aggregate, it is it it is more freeing. And I I make no bones about it. The Kickstarter experience was overwhelmingly positive for us. Um, and the movie would not have been made had it not been for Kickstarter because we wouldn't have gone on. So it's not like we would have met Sultan and he would have brought his money regardless of the, of the Kickstarter. It never would have existed. And um, so that, I think, is, is an absolutely wonderful thing. And somebody asked, would you do it again? And I said, huh, you know, I took a deep breath. And I said, um, I'd love to do it again. But it is such a lot of work. I mean, you know, as we were saying, it is roughly 10,000 prizes that, that need to go out. And, and it's not just about like, oh, it costs more to ship out a T-shirt to England or wherever than we anticipated. Because we did, but we, we estimated pretty well. But it's just that, that it is a year and a half to two year full-time job yeah. for somebody. And that is, that's the part that is a bit daunting, right? Um, I, I have a friend who did a Kickstarter and he does cat, he does pet products and he did a cat toy of some sort. Okay. And when you're not in the movie business, you know, in the movie Kickstarter campaign, you do the t cat toy and the prize is a cat toy. Yeah. <laughs> that cat toy. The prize is not all the other ancillary fun things, right? That, that, that um, you know that we were adding, you know, it's not posters, it's not T-shirts, it's not you know rolls and you know, um, and and and, and, and don't get me wrong, it all that all those those prizes 
are fun and they're fun to conceptualize and it was fun to kind of work within the, you know, to, to work that all into the script was a challenge and it was, and it was fun, you know? Um, but, uh, but it's, it's work. That's all it's work, but everything's work, you know? So I don't know. I, I, I look at like people that I've seen who work for Fox on a movie, like a first time director. I can't tell you how many times I've been on, on the set on a Fox movie and heard the first time director screaming at a studio executive over the phone or, or, um, or just, uh, you know, in, in a horrible mental state because of being messed with by the studio, you know, controlled, shot down, ideas shot down, visions compromised, all that stuff. I didn't Please. have to go through any of that. I mean, and you I'm see grateful it's to Kickstarter. Yes, What's it's, that? It's, it's all in the news at the moment, I think, uh, with the, the new Fantastic Four film, isn't it? It's like a, a war going on between the director and the and the studio. About Is that right? I haven't been yeah. paying attention. I know there was some controversial tweet that he pulled out. Is that what's happening? And that's Fox, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a he yeah. said, he, he said, he said sort of thing going yeah. on at the moment. Well, and and it, it's not the first time. I mean, I know when we were, I mean, it's just not the first time. And and I don't know that it's specifically Fox, but, um, but uh, you know, there's something that that's corporate filmmaking. That's corporate filmmaking right there. Yeah. We didn't have a bureaucracy of people over us. Sultan from Dark Dunes was wonderful. He just said, listen, you're the expert, you know, go make it happen. Yeah. And um, he was wonderful. So I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for that. Yeah. I mean, obviously being on set with all the practical effects, I mean, did it sort of take you back to sort of like the golden era, which I, I like to call the eighties of like monster movies and things like that, because that was, my childhood, like as I said, I grew up watching Aliens and um, mm-hmm. the Thing, and uh, even things like Gremlins and that. It's it's all practical effects, you know. Yep. No, that's it's it's true. I mean, we you know we've been doing um, we've been doing cool stuff for movies, but we tend to do smaller bits and pieces on big bigger movies. Um, yeah. And so when when we get a chance, even in lower budget movies, medium to low budget movies to do an entire creature or, you know, um, what have you, we jump at that chance. And being on my own set, it was kind of like a scaled down mini version of aliens, right? Where we didn't have quite the fantastic scale of, um, of, uh, actual sets. And, you know, we didn't have the numbers of miniatures and all that kind of stuff, but, um, to have all that stuff and to have all the, the toys and the resources, even though they were sort of like low budget versions of them, that was part of the fun too. How do I make this stuff look big budget when in reality it's very, very low budget? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, another thing that I do like about the film as well is the cast, you know, just, as you said, you've got Lance Henriksen and it was good to see old, um, Matt Winston, who is actually a friend of mine, you know, our paths have crossed quite a few times over the last uh-huh. few years, and we we always chat online, so it's always fun to get yeah, into the film, and, and then the fact that he plays a complete, his character is just a complete dick in the film almost, and he yeah. almost gets yeah. coming to him. And um, well, he's he's you know Matt, of, of course. Well, you know that 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 scene where um, he's he's kind of chastising Sadie and he's saying, look, kid, you just don't have the experience. 
That's yeah. where I come in. You're getting too big for your, for your britches. I just, I got chills as I was watching him do it because he looked so much like his father. And I thought, I bet you I got some version of this lecture from your dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a 25-year-old, you know, <laughs> on, the, on, on aliens or something, running around. And, of course, Stan was much more of a fatherly type right, than, hmm. <laughs> than the Steven character. But I just... um Matt has something about him. He's just able to chan, channel his inner a-hole and uh, just play, play it with relish. I just love the way he uh, he delivered in that in that role. It's terrific. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, and he pulled off his death scene great as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that, scene, that scene where you said that he was chastising her, you know, he, you know it reminded me of that. The scene from uh, Weird Science, you know, um, Bill Paxton's character, uh, what's his name? Oh, right. And it is the camera, like, you angled it at, like, a sort of a right close-up low angle where you just, like, you just want to yeah. punch him because they're so annoying. Um, yeah, he's just, he's getting too close. Yeah. And he's, like, he's in your face. Yeah, I, lo- I love that stuff. Well, you know, I mean, the the, the it's interesting with this film because it's, it's kind of created, it, it, it's polarizing. Um I think because it's been so long, you know, to the fans, it's been two years or whatever it's been. Yeah. Um, and that to them feels like a long time to me. It's like we barely had enough time to do what we did. But um, there's been an anticipation and a lot of people are bringing to it, you know, their hopes, their desires for what the project would be. With a lot of people, it's completely, it's exactly what they were hoping it would be. Some people were hoping for a reinvention of the carpenter, uh, uh, you know, of the rules of the whatever. They wanted to come at it from a different angle. And that was not my intent. My intent was to do a, because quite honestly, Alien and The Thing are just about perfect movies. Yeah. And perfect scripts. So the the problem, I think, with... um, with calling yourself the thing or doing a, a sequel to Alien or whatever, is that with the exception of uh, Aliens, which is an equally fantastic movie to to Alien, no one has hit it. And I did not feel that, you know, me, myself, I'm not Ridley Scott, I'm not John Carpenter. We don't have, not that budget is the determining factor, but we don't have all the resources of time or budget to, to do... Uh, a movie that is going to be uh, equally perfect to those movies, and I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't attempt it. So, what my goal for the film was was I wanted. I, I think of it as like it's like it's like '80s comfort food, right? It's like um, it's like uh, meatloaf, right? It's like monster meatloaf, where it's not filet mignon. It's it's a comfort food, right? You, yeah. you're, you're, you're starving. We've all been starving for that dish that was served up so well in the 1980s, and nobody's cooking that dish anymore. Yeah. So I wanted to, I wanted to do it, and within that structure, and within being respectful of the conventions of those, specifically those two movies, I then wanted to add some bits of character and some quirkiness that made it feel not like a studio film 
uh, and take some risks. And, you know, like I got a guy, uh, you know, I got Roland, creepy Roland, the, the ship's uh, engineer, who's lying there looking at pictures of sloths on his wall. I, That's just weird, right? No mm. one in a studio movie would ever allow that. Yeah. And whether it connects with people or doesn't connect with people, I thought, screw it. This is the kind of risk that they were taking in the 80s, where you'd have some weird, bizarre character um, with non-sequitur kind of um, kind of detail information. And uh, so I thought, I'm taking that chance. And, I, and I'm going to take the chance on, on casting people as types, you know, yeah. as archetypes. And then with all of them, try to give them something that plays against the type, you know? Mm -hmm. Like if Big G is the big scary guy who is intimidating at first, he's actually quite soft-hearted and likes stupid jokes and gets has a crush on a girl. Yeah. And he's also a guy who can punch a monster in the face, you know? <laughs> Fett, who turns out to be, you know, what we would call a bad guy, um, she actually does like Big G. You know, and she probably feels bad, but she's a professional and she's going to carry on her, her job as she needs to do it. Um, and she, she appreciates it when, when he says, I should have broken your neck when I had the chance. And she says, but you're a gentleman. She means it, you know, mm. but that's yeah. not going to stop her from, in her mind, saving the world. And that's actually what she's doing. That's another thing with, uh, you know, uh, one thing, I, uh, something I respected a lot about Frank Darabont's The Mist was uh, that his main character um, actually makes mistakes all through the movie. Yeah. And, the, and it culminates with that final tragic error where he mercy kills mm. his son it's and nice. for no reason. And One that to me is... In, in a film he, I think I've he, ever seen. Oh, my God. And he got such pushback from the studio on that yeah. that because they knew that that would affect their bottom line. The, their feeling was you're going to make millions of dollars less if you do this ending. And he said, I'm doing the ending. Yeah. And I think he had to take a pay cut or he, he went to the wall for that ending. And I thought, you know, that's, that is the kind of thing you don't see much anymore. These days when you're in meetings and they're talking about scripts, no one has the balls to make a flawed main character. Uh, you know, so, someone who actually is part of a problem and I wanted Sadie to open a Pandora's box that she just could not shut. And um, and by the end, when she's on that little ice chunk, um, she shattered. You know, mm. she shattered. But now I suppose you could, if if there was ever to, to be a sequel to it, you have a very interesting character then who has caused the the uh, really been a, been a big part of causing the deaths of loved ones and, 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 and crew people, innocent people. And that could be a very, that could make for a very tortured character. But, but anyway, so I, I, you know, whether or not people, people are just so not used to seeing that kind of thing that I think um, they don't know what to make of it or they just, they're dismissive of it. So, yeah, uh, but these are the ideas and whether or not all the ideas come across, uh, I, I, I don't know. That's up to, that's up to personal taste and preference and people's opinions, but that's what I was going for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you, do you have an idea for a sequel yet? Or I mean, uh... um, no. I I feel like um, I feel like this is like for me anyway. This is uh, this is it's just a it's its own thing. It's so 
the movie is so niche and um, it is, it's, it's a, I feel like it's a narrow appeal movie perhaps. I mean, I, I love the whole uh, subgenre of body morphing and alien, uh, alien human DNA crossbreeding and aggressively mutating, uh, you know, I, I think it's just as valid a subgenre as zombies are or vampires yeah. or it's just part of the lore. Dead Space has, has expanded on it in the video games. And, um, but the thing is that it, it, is, it is so associated with John Carpenter's The Thing yeah. that uh, people just automatically go back to that. Oh, it's The Thing, right? Yeah. Um, and I think, that, uh, I think that it certainly could be reinvented. And it could be, you know, like, like for me, like, well, she's somewhere out in the Bering Sea. The Aleutian Islands are a chain of islands that reach out into the Bering Sea. So yeah. hopscotching from island to island, this this virus, could be a very interesting miniseries, right? Yeah. You know, will it get through the mainland? It's still got the Aleutian Islands. And you have all those wonderful local characters of Inuit people and sailors and people from Russia and Mongolia, all in that area. Uh, I think it could be it could be very rich, but I, I just don't know if I'm the guy to to go down that road, you know. It was your, it was your first um, directing role, wasn't it? Um, for a feature. Yeah, film. I mean, I've been I've been in the movie business for 35 years, but uh, and second unit directed and done shorts and written and sold scripts and you know I you know a book and all that stuff, so. It was sort of bringing together all of my skill package into yeah. feature film format, and it was a blast. It was a huge learning experience, and um, you know, there are things I wouldn't do the same way, and, and things I'm very proud of the way we did do them. Yeah. Well, see, once it was finished, and you've sort of moved on to, um, is it Kids vs Monsters, which you've got coming up next? Yeah, that was uh, Sultan's uh, Dark Dunes other movie and we did a bunch of yeah completely different type of film yeah. uh, and we did a bunch of kind of fun whimsical characters that mm. you know came sprung from sultan's sultan's mind yeah was it was it nice just to sort of get back into just doing the uh like creature effects and things like that rather than overseeing a whole project yes it's always it's, you know <laughs> after you after you go through something like a carbinger it's it reminds you you know yeah <laughs> I don't want to say what an easy job it is. It's just, it's just, you know, you can, you can jump back and forth. We can do multiple creature jobs at one time, but you can't, uh, unless you're Steven Spielberg, you can't, uh, you can't do multiple, you can't direct multiple movies at one time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, one more thing on Harbinger. What, what was, uh, big G Winston Francis like? Cause, um, I'm actually speaking to him in a couple of days, um, oh. to do it on the, for, um, a little Harbinger down feature I'm doing. So, um, I just want to get a quick word on him. Yeah, well, you know, I I really wanted a I wanted a seven foot tall guy. You know, yeah. I originally originally wrote the part for um, for uh, Robert uh, Maillet. I don't know if you know him. I worked with him on um, Percy Jackson too, and he's kind of a gentle giant. You know, you'd recognize him. He was in the three hundred. Like a giant guy with the chains on his neck, you know, the free yeah, yeah. And he's been he's been, he's in the strain because creatures, but he does a whole bunch of and and he's just a sweet guy. And so I, I like that gentle giant thing, you know. But 
being that he's Canadian and we were shooting in Los Angeles, it wasn't wasn't possible. So I said, you know, well, we got to find a seven foot tall guy. So the word goes out, and we got a bunch of, you know, some pretty good guys, and some six foot seven guys, and some guys that were kind of skinny. And then in walks Winston, and aside from just having a very interesting look and a, you know, uh, very 1980s John Carpenter style beard. Um, <laughs> He was the only one who didn't play it like a WWE wrestler. Yeah. All the other auditions, people were just like, they were cranked up to level 10 aggression. And um, it just wasn't what I wanted. The, Winston was able to, he sort of came in and he was like a, just a cool guy. Just a guy you'd enjoy hanging out with. He's charming, kind of soft-spoken. He's got a, he's got a great voice. He sounds like a, I don't know, he sounds like a, a jazz musician or something like that. It's just like a really cool, and he's massive. You stand next to him and, you know, like if I give the guy a hug, I'm getting a face full of armpit. Yeah. Um, and he's about 350 pounds and really athletic and strong. And he doesn't um, parade his size around because he doesn't have to, you know. So that's what I wanted. I felt like he was already a, uh, a character and not just an effect, you know? Yeah. Um, so I love the guy. He's very funny. He's very, um, he's very chatty and he's very stream of consciousness and, uh, he's a happy person. He's a very happy person. And, and he, he didn't, uh, he, he said he wasn't always, he, there was time, there was time when he was an angry kid, you know, but he was huge. Yeah. And, uh, and, and he's gone through, a, I like people who have gone through a life journey, you know, who, who uh, evolves, and, and he certainly does. And he's a dad. He's got an adorable little baby. You know, great mm. guy. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be sure to tell him uh, that you said so many positive words about him. I'm sure, I'd be glad to hear it. Oh uh, um, yeah, nice. Yeah, I mean, what what made you get into sort of like the uh, practical effects and creature effects and things like that? Sort of going back, was it was it something you pursued, or was it something that you sort of? fell into through through something else? No, I was it was dogged pursuit. I mean, I think from age nine I I wanted to uh I wanted to work in movies. I loved uh it's probably the movie Plan the original Planet of the Apes that all right. shifted my awareness of all that stuff. But um and and my father was you know, he was not in the movie biz, uh but you know, he was kind of a doodler. He would draw all over the you know, as he was on the phone, he you know He'd draw, and he knew something about special effects. And uh, he had, in the 1950s, he had sold uh, Dick Smith a uh, life insurance policy in New York City. So he was a fan of these guys. He knew Dick Smith's work. And he knew Gene Warren's work. These were guys that worked at NBC in New York in Manhattan. And um, so he would tell me these things. You know, I would watch movies, and he'd say, look, at King Kong was only 18 inches tall. And, you know, so I just was steeped in it from a very early age and I was fortunate enough to have parents who um, encouraged my interests because I know a lot of people who uh, who, who just are, are told that you know it's impossible other people do that stuff and other people and I was always told well somebody's got to do it you know yeah why not you so um, yeah and it, and it, I mean how did you sort of fall into like working with Stan Winston and Eventually I had, um, 
your own company. I, I started, uh, I, I actually, uh, uh, when I was in college, um, I was, I would use my mother's uh, garage as a little workshop and I was making stop motion films and making masks and things. And um, my sister had a connection with someone who worked at Roger Corman's and they got me an interview at Corman's and mm-hmm. I, uh, I was a little, I was only about uh, 19 and I was insecure about my skill level. Yeah. I didn't really have a proper portfolio, but I said, can I bring a friend along? He's a really good artist too. Cause I just met this guy named James Cameron right. who was, who was 25 years old and he was a couple of towns over and I met him through um, a high school art teacher that I had, you know, her husband was an oceanography teacher. And so I met Cameron back in the day. So I thought, well, I'll just get this guy to come along and, um, and I will, he'll make me look good. <laughs> yeah. So, cause he had a great portfolio. And, um, but the problem was, uh, that, uh, Cameron was very, um, he was about 25 years old, but he was very, uh, as, as insecure as I was, he was way overly confident. Mm. And, uh, so it, it took them a little, a little while to hire us, I think, because they, they saw us as, you know, a team and, um, they thought maybe, Cameron uh, might be a little bit of a handful, but that was when Robert Skotek, Robert and Dennis Skotek kept going to bat for us saying, get those guys, get those guys from Orange County. We need them. We need them. So finally we got hired and I started working at, um, uh, on Battle Bay on the Stars in 1980. That was my first movie. But uh, when, um, and then when Cameron did Terminator, he recommended me to Stan Winston. Yeah to work on Terminator. So Stan gave me a call, but I had already committed to Friday the 13th part four and I was working with Tom Savini. And, um, so I went in, but I showed my, uh, portfolio to Stan and Stan liked my work and he liked the fact that I didn't just jump ship and quit on a project. Yeah. Uh, so I came in after that on, uh, just about the time of aliens or invaders from Mars and aliens. And that was my, that was when I started work for Stan. That's where I met Tom Woodruff. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing led to another. We ended up getting to work on some really great 1980s, uh, 1980s classics. Wow, that's a wild motorcycle. Yeah, no, I, I, was just, I was wondering if you were still here. Yeah, no, I mean, just looking through, like, sort of like your... Your, your movie resume. I mean, you could go into like a, a video store, throw a stone, and hit something that you work that you've worked on. Obviously, you need yeah. to go in a time machine to find a video store at first. But um, I mean, is there anything sort of like in your career that you'd want that you think like you know I'd really like to do that? You know, I'd really like to work on this sort of film. Well, uh, yeah, you know, um, I, I I personally still think there's a lot of uh there's a lot of new developments that uh animatronics can still still need to go through like i think we were on a an upward trajectory with uh, you know the work the hensons were doing in the in the 80s and yeah. uh the work carlo rambaldi you know was doing on things like et um and then of course rick baker and stan Rich were and then in the uh 90s when the digital revolution came around, it kind of put things on ice. 
Not entirely. It's just that now the, the film's budgets didn't tend to pay for the development of new techniques. If you wanted to develop a new technique in animatronics, you had to finance it yourself. And that's yeah. difficult because we didn't have deep pocket companies, Lucasfilm, you know, or ILM had Lucasfilm funding its development. And, um, you know, so, so we, we haven't really, we've been a little stunted, even though there have been some great advancements in skin materials and sizes and powers of motors and things like that have been coming along. But anyway, I think that, uh, I'd, I'd really like to break some new ground in, in animatronics. Um, but the types of films that I, that I want to make, um, I have more films, I have more scripts of my own that I'd like to pursue. And I think, um, I think I'd like to do them as modest budgeted films and not as, I'd like to do them as sort of under the radar, off yeah. the big budget. Um, you know, I really like what, uh, Neil Blomkamp did with District 9. That was fantastic. Um, where he sort of like, you didn't really know what District 9 was. It just sort of, you know, you saw a little bit of a little bit of an ad campaign and then boom, it hit the scene and it was so beautifully done. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so, um, so much a statement of who Neil Blomkamp was. Um, I, I really admire that. Yeah. And, um, I mean, you see, this is where like a lot of the, the new films that are coming out that stand out as being creative are people who have to use their sort of initiative and sort of self-teach themselves and have to, you know, improvise with a lot, a lot of sort of like on-screen imagery with effects and things like that. You know, it really does take, you know, the creative people to, to actually bring the, the good films out at the moment. You know, it said like studios are just a machine pumping out properties left, right and center, as you can see with like the latest fantastic four film. Whereas you compare that, to films like, um, I mean, did you did you see the Bubba Duke, the the Australian? Yes, I did. I did. Loved it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Film, films like that, and um, yeah, you know, they, they just like you compare that to sort of like the mainstream horrors that are getting pumped at, like the the Poltergeist yeah. remake and things like that, and you're just like, you know, it, yeah. Thank God for the people out there who are, you know, dedicating themselves like yourselves to putting out material and films that are you know have got a lot of heart and soul and have a lot of substance in what is yeah. on screen yeah and that there's uh there's some risk taking you know that i can yeah i can i can hang with a movie that um may not be completely successful in all categories as long as they're 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 taking a risk um and uh you know um and i and i and i you feel like when you watch a Hollywood blockbuster, like, you know, they've had so many test screenings and focus groups and they've spent millions of dollars on reshoots and, you know, they've, they've fired, uh, uh, different composers and put new, you know, they're just like spending money hand over fist so that this thing will become so broad based. They have to because they're spending $200 million on it. Yeah. So they have to do everything they possibly can in order to make $500 million and God bless them if they can do it. But when it's a misfire, it just seems like a, an incredible waste of uh, resources. I mean, to me, the, you know, if, if a movie makes $500 million, it's because people want to see it and that's fine. 
do it. You know, people want to see these movies. But, God, can, can we get, like, can we get 10 more Babadooks every year? You know? Yeah. Can we can we can we give opportunities to indie filmmakers? Can we can we get some new people, um, young people? Like I had the advantage of working for Roger Corman back in the day. A lot yeah. of what we worked on was crappy stuff, but it still somehow has become um, beloved. And you know, I just did a a, a couple of years ago. I, I never thought I would be doing a commentary track on um, Galaxy of Terror. You know. <laughs> um, yeah. And and I can't say Galaxy of Terror is a is a particularly good movie, but there's something about it, and there's something about the fact that it, it was not a Hollywood movie; it was an independent film. And when you look at the 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 crew list on it, you see tons of names of people. You know, Bill Paxton was a carpenter on Battle Beyond the Stars. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, so where where are these people come from? Where's the I don't know. I'd I'd love to if 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 I could play a role in bringing back some of these small movies that, uh, you know, and, and, and doing a, a, a one, one hundredth of what Roger Corman did for the industry. Um, I'd be happy. Mm. I mean, that's one of the positives of sort of, um, digital outlets now like Amazon and Netflix and things like that is that, you know, I'm, I'm sitting through films and like people are seeing films now that, they weren't getting the chance to see before because yeah. Blockbuster and um, yeah, sort of supermarkets right. and things weren't stocking them on the shelves. Now, you know, things like the Bubba Duke and um, there's a, there a film I watched a couple of years ago. I thought it was great. Um, I don't know if you see it. It was a found footage horror film called Grave Encounters. No, which, I don't know that one. But that was great. And I, never in a million years would, would um, you know, if I got to have seen that sort of like 10, 15 years ago. And it's sure. great, you know, and obviously you, you've got a platform where you can put out films like Harbinger Down and get them to a worldwide audience. Yeah. You know, what, what, what I'm very curious about is how how do we go about um, getting distribution, direct distribution, like connect directly with the fan base, directly with the viewer, so that when a movie is rented, um, that money is going to the filmmaker, not to a distribution company who's jacking up their prices and lying about, you know, their bottom line, not to sales agents who have automatic, uh, you know, fees and percentages and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. that it goes to the people who have actually sweat the blood and artists, artists who are just trying to pay their rent, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, so that, that that's that's something we're... We're very interested in. We're looking into that to see what. I mean, unfortunately, we've got piracy concerns, right? Like the the the, the day after Harbinger came out in theaters, I think um, there it was on five torrent sites, you know, and uh, and it's on YouTube, you know. And so, who's chasing all that down when you're a little low budget movie? It's really should be the distributor, but they're not because they're spread thin too. So, uh, mm. I, I don't. I, I want to be able to offer entertainment that is inexpensively priced for people, but I also want artists to thrive and 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 you know yeah. find their livelihood out of it. I think there's 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 such a problem with like as you said like distribution as well is that I, I still can't believe that. I mean we see it over here with a few films. I think one of the ones is. Um, Bridge of Spies, the new Spielberg films, not coming out for something like four or five months 
after the US release. There's no reason for it to for the like for them to wait that long. There was a there was a film earlier this year um, as well. I can't remember which one it was, but it was about three or four months after the US release. They released it in England, and I think it took a massive hit at the box office because by that time, you know, there was sort of like DVD quality um, yeah. torrents out there and things like that, and it's just like in yeah. what. In this day and age, how can they not just instantaneously release things around the world yeah, at the same yeah. time? Yeah, I I don't know, and I wonder too that you know, like if if we there are ways to do digital downloads or, or single views and things like that, but any way that you have to show it, yeah, it's like a one view option. It, it, there's also, you know, five ways to crack that and, and, you know, get it up on on the Internet. So I'm not sure what the future holds, um, but I, I think that it's uh, – uh, once that nut is, uh, once that nut is uh, cracked, then I think the studios are going to have a hard time surviving, you know, because yes. then it will truly – like we've already got crowdfunding as a democratization of the process. Equipment mm. has never been cheaper. Images have never been better for less. You know, we shot with a Black Magic camera that um, is a—it's an inexpensive, comparatively inexpensive camera, but it's an absolutely beautiful image. Yeah. Um, you know, it, so it's all getting less and less costly to make movies. Once we are able to release them, um, we won't need all this—all uh, these middle people to. Uh, you know, to take the money from uh, from the artists, and by artists I mean like crew people. You know, crew yeah. people who come in and work at a reduced rate, or or work long hours, and you know, and uh, just don't make much money. You know, I mean, yeah. people are people. You know, practical effects people. You know, generally it's like if if they were in it for the money, they'd become plumbers. They'd make a better living. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's like uh, um... nothing against plumbers. I love. I love it when my plumbing works. Yeah. I mean, one uh, another person that I've spoken to a, a fair few times and, you know, we drop emails back and forth is uh, Phil Tippett as well. And he yeah. sort of has the same the same view as you, you know, like, you know, the, the physical effects, you know, industry is is under threat, unfortunately. And, you know, the, it, it's such a creative, creative field and, you know, it, it it just needs to get back out there. And I think, as you said, something like Harbinger Down will, you know, open the door, open open some people's eyes who will be like, you know what, I want to make a, you know, because people can make films on their on their iPhones now, don't they? Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. even edit it on their iPhones and add special effects. So they might be like, well, you know what, I'm going to make a practical effects film with my friend, a couple of bin bags and some toilet roll tubes and things like that. Yeah, and that's all it takes. And for all we know, ten, fifteen years time, he could be the next, you know, uh, James Cameron making an alien style film. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, um, well, thank you very much for your uh, your time, Alec. I'll uh, let you. Yeah, the pleasure. I will let you get on with your day. It's been an absolute joy talking with you. Um, This is Sam signing off, and I've been talking with Alec Gillis. Thanks for taking the time, Sam.